Well, this is a class on the Great Awakening. Uh, I think all of you probably know something about the Great Awakening. Uh, 18th century America, primarily in the 1740s, but in this class we'll be covering a a larger swath of time, uh, roughly from about 1720 to about 1770, so about a 50-year period of time. Uh, But the, the... the, uh, the high tide, as it were, of the Great Awakening is located in the 1740s, first half of that decade, primarily. The, the outline is not correct. Uh, some of these dates are going to change. I have good reason to believe that April 3rd, we're, we're having a home missionary take up the hour of Sunday school. So we'll push back everything after that to the next week. And then there will be uh, another week uh, in which I won't be here. And at that point, we'll push it off another week as well. So, so we're probably going to mid-June here by the time we're done. Uh, but I'll let you know as those things come up. But I think the April 3rd is pretty sure that we won't be having this class, but we'll have the home missionary. So you can, if you just briefly uh, peruse this, you can kind of see some of the names that we'll be covering, Edwards, Whitfield, chief among them. But there's quite another, quite, quite uh, a number of other figures as well that, um, that we will be studying. So uh, like I said, you probably know a little bit about it, at least some of you probably know a lot about it, uh, but we'll all know a lot about it by the end of the class, Lord willing. Well, let's start just with a, a couple of verses out of Job. You don't even have to turn there. I'll just read out of the last chapter of Job, this great confrontation between uh, Job and the Lord himself. And this, uh, we have Job saying this to the Lord, I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now mine eye seeth thee. Wherefore I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. Let's open up in prayer. Lord, we hardly know what, uh, what we are coming to when we approach you in prayer. So infinite and eternal and unchangeable are you. It, it's, we become familiar with approaching you, but when we stop to think of what you are, we, we, we have to ask, as Christians who know something about you, we have to ask, what are you even? You're so unfathomable, but chiefly we want to think of your, your inconceivability and your holiness and, and how perfectly holy you are. And when we approach you, what we are approaching uh, of that which would utterly destroy us if we came into your presence apart from your grace, apart from the shed blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we, we, we read these verses and we see Job coming into contact with you in such a way that, that he is virtually dissolved in himself and in his own sense of well-being in your presence. And as Christians, almost by confession, we have to say this is what we want. We want to see you with the eye and not just hear you with the ear. We long and we even pine for your divine influence in our lives, to purge our sin, to enlighten our minds, 
in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ increasingly until that great day when faith will be set aside and, and sight will be the rule. We thank you, Father, for our Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you for the time that we have to ponder him and his works in this world until the consummation of it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The handout for this week, you just have a few quotes. They're fairly lengthy quotes. Uh, and and uh, we will have reason to read these as we go through. So you can follow along when I read a long quote in here. There'll be some other quotes that I'm going to read that uh, are not in here. But these are some of the primary ones. Uh, as I said, this is a class on the Great Awakening, 18th century America. I, I thought the best way to start was just to give you, instead of me trying to explain what it is or give you a big overview before we start working our way through things, uh, to read this quote, and it's the top quote in your handout, by Isaac Watts, actually by Isaac Watts and John Guise, who wrote a preface to, to a work, a small work by Jonathan Edwards in the 1730s called A Faithful Narrative of the Surprising Work of God. Now, technically speaking, this surprising work of God occurred five years or so before the Great Awakening properly understood in the 1740s. Uh, but it was nonetheless a, a, a wonderful and a mighty work of the Spirit of God in converting many sinners, uh, which I should add were professing Christians in the church. This is one of the distinctives of the, of, of the awakening that we'll get into. They, they were among professing Christians in the church who uh, began to be deeply convicted that they were only professors or confessors of the faith, but the reality had not been there. Uh, this stirs up an awful lot of controversy in the church, but this is, this is something of the nature of the Great Awakening. So I want to just start with this quote, as I said by Isaac Watts, the, the, the famous hymn writer. We all, we all know that name, and we sing his hymns from week to week. So this is what he says. I just think it's marvelous, and it sums up the, not just the, the surprising work of God in 1734 and 35, but the entire period of the Great Awakening. Never did we hear, says Watts, Never did we hear since the first ages of Christianity any event of this kind so surprising, wherein it pleased God to display his free and sovereign mercy in the conversion of a great multitude of souls in a short space, turning them from a formal, cold, and careless profession to the lively exercise of every Christian grace and the powerful practice of our holy religion. There has been a great and just complaint for many years that the work of conversion goes on very slowly, that the Spirit of God and His saving influences is much withdrawn from the ministrations of His Word. But as the gospel is the same divine instrument of grace still as ever it was in the days of the Apostle, so our ascended Savior now and then takes a special occasion to manifest the divinity of this gospel by a plentiful effusion of His Spirit where it is preached. Then, Sinners are turned into saints in numbers, and there is a new face of things spread over a town or country. Surely, concerning this instance, we may say they have seen the outgoings of God our King in his sanctuary. Well, it's just marvelous. I mean, we could spend uh, the rest of our time this morning just, just looking at this line by line. It's so dense and, and pregnant uh, with observation. 
But it sums up, I think, fairly, fairly neatly and fairly gloriously the, the work of God uh, in the world at this time that we'll be looking at for the next many weeks. Last fall, we did a study on the Protestant Reformation in Europe in the 16th century, so the 1500s. Uh, we, we looked at men, if you remember, like Jacques Lefebvre and William Farrell, uh, uh, Philip Melanchthon, Ulrich Zwingli, Martin Luther, of course, and John Calvin, of course, but then there were other men like... Uh, uh, Johann Echolampadius, one of one of our favorite names, probably, uh, and and Bucer. There were there there were just a number of men that we looked at in their particular countries and in their particular churches who were working out the doctrines of the Reformation, primarily revolving around that great doctrine of justification by faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone. But the goal, the supreme goal of the entire study, which I hope was clear, was that behind the labors of men, we, we were admiring, we were noting and admiring and worshiping the, the acts, the infallible work of Christ himself in, in heaven, sending forth his spirit into the world to build his church. It was Christ building his church. That was the essence, uh, I hope, of, of uh, the study. Well, we ended the class with a quote, if you remember, from John Knox, the Scottish reformer, who gave this brief explanation of the entire Reformation. God gave his Holy Spirit to simple men in great abundance. And that, that short answer uh, sums up, really, the Great Awakening as well. They have that very much in common. God gave his Holy Spirit to simple men in great abundance. Both the Reformation in the 1500s and the Great Awakening in the 1800s were great overtures of the Spirit of Christ upon the preaching of Christ from the Scriptures. That was the essence. You don't have one and another separate. You don't have the Spirit working and the Word of Christ being read and preached. Uh, you have the two going together, or not at all. The Word is preached, and the Spirit takes it and thrusts it, as it were, into the minds and the hearts of hearers, as Christ pleases to do, as he gathers his elect, those that the Father has given him from all eternity. It's, it's just a wonderful scheme in the best sense of the word. It's a divine scheme which God has ordained from the beginning of the world, from before the beginning of the world, and now in time he's bringing it to pass infallibly. And we're, all, we're brought in to that as we come to know the Savior. So that's the same, I mean, that's a similarity, I should say, this, this uh, work of the Spirit upon the preaching of Christ. But there's a difference, it's a basic difference, it's, uh, it's a vital, a radical difference between the two, and I want to make that clear now. In the Reformation, prior to the Reformation, there was a deformation. Uh, the, the scriptures had been buried, the, the doctrines of grace, particularly justification, by faith alone, uh, the way that men are saved had been buried and obscured. The light of the gospel had not been entirely snuffed out. That's never the case in the world. But institutionally, it had been largely snuffed out so that men and women en masse were attending the mass uh, week after week, even day after day in many cases, but they were entirely ignorant of the way of salvation. And, and we looked at that in depth when we studied the Reformation. 
So the light of the gospel itself had been eclipsed on a massive scale. Uh, the prophecy of Isaiah would be very apropos, even though it didn't specifically apply uh, to the Middle Ages. We could, we could characterize the Middle Ages by saying, as Isaiah did, darkness shall cover the earth and gross darkness the people. It's one of the reasons, not the only, but it's one great reason why we call it the Dark Ages. Darkness, gross darkness was covering the people in relation to the knowledge of salvation and of the God of salvation. In a single lifetime, we, we could take the life of any of the reformers from the time they were born till the time they died. In that single 50 or 60 year lifespan, uh, everything changed in regard to that gross darkness. Uh, post tenebras lux, you remember that, that Latin phrase, after darkness, light, which is one of the great mottos of the Reformation. After darkness, light. Uh, Take Calvin's life, for instance. He was born in 1509. Uh, when he was born, almost universal ignorance in the church. The Reformation had not begun yet in any official way, uh, although there were tremors, you, you might say, certainly occurring. By his death, by Calvin's death in 1564, uh, Europe abounded with the light of the gospel. You, you had clear and bold gospel confessions in virtually every country. You, you had the Augsburg Confession in Germany, for, for the Lutherans in Germany, for the Reformed in Germany, particularly in northern Germany in the Palatinate, you, you had the Heidelberg Catechism, which we're, we're familiar with. It's a great, great confession. You had, uh, in the Netherlands, you had the Belgic Confession. You had the Helvetic Confession for the, the, for the Swiss. You had the Scots Confession in Scotland, and the 39 Articles in England. So in every Protestant country, you have these great confessions. So with, with these, so by the time we get to the end of the 1500s, really not even the end, but by the end of Calvin's life, 1564, these confessions were already all in place. So, so the face of things had changed across Europe in reference to the light of the gospel. Men knew it. This was, this was the age, we're entering the age then, uh, in the 1560s or so, the age that, that's commonly called Protestant Orthodoxy, the age of Protestant Orthodoxy, uh, which is a whole history all on its own. And each country uh, went through these decades of Protestant Orthodoxy in, in different characteristic ways. So for a century and even more, uh, this knowledge of the gospel institutionally, I say, uh, prevailed. Evangelical truth was prevailing. You could say that men grew up drinking it with their mother's milk, to, to use a kind of phrase to explain it. Uh, it was known, and it was loved. But, uh, as we all know, sadly, increasingly, as is almost always the case, uh, a declension began to set in. Men formally subscribed to these confessions, I mean, the parents and they handed down to the children, but generation after generation, there began to grow a formality with regard to what they knew in their heads and in their minds. Uh, they subscribed to the confessions, but inwardly, increasingly, they had no vital apprehension or possession of the truth that they professed. This is, it's perennial. It is the human condition in, in many ways. So, so then that's the Reformation. Before the Reformation came, there was a deformation 
and then the Reformation followed. But the Great Awakening is very different in this sense. The Great Awakening followed this prior declension that we just led up to in the age of Protestant orthodoxy. Uh, Gospel light had been shining in the Western world. Uh, It had become for thousands. Uh, However, little more than, as Watts had put it, a formal, cold, and careless profession. That's I'm quoting from Watts in what we read uh, earlier. So, if you go back before the Reformation and think of the state of, of mind and soul of the people, it was impossible, it was literally impossible, by definition, to be a cold, formal professor of the doctrine of justification by faith. It, it didn't exist, again, institutionally. Uh, it wasn't something that you could know and then formally confess without, without knowing the essence or the vitality of it. It just wasn't there. But by the turn of the 18th century, as we approach the decades coming up to the Great Awakening, this is exactly what had happened. Men knew the doctrine of justification by faith, but it had lost its hold upon the very soul, again, in many cases. I'm not saying by any means it was universal, but there was a massive movement into formalism. And that massive movement into formalism, we, again, that could be a study all on its own when we think of the rationalism that, that came out of the Great Awakening, the, uh, I'm sorry, the, the uh, Enlightenment. Many great things in the Enlightenment. Uh, one of the downsides was it began to shift men off of, of God as the, the, the author of the order in the universe. And as somewhat stereotypically, you know, when we think of the Newtonian age, we think of a clockwork universe. And well, it's all, you know, it's independent. Newton certainly didn't think that. Uh, in fact, he reprimanded those who tried to reduce it to that. Uh, but nonetheless, that's just the natural effect of new discoveries in science. Men begin to take them further along, further afield, and apply them in ways that suit their own lusts and their own passions. So uh, this cold and formal profession began to dominate. So it happened in Europe on a grand scale, in the Protestant countries. It happened in America, which was, of course, founded at least in New England in 1620, and then you get into the, into the 1630s and things are really thriving, uh, which is a whole century before the Great Awakening. Well, Samuel Blair, who was one of the great awakeners, we could call him, uh, he characterized this situation in America, particularly in Pennsylvania, where he was preaching. Samuel Blair says, says this. He speaks to this general condition that we've now come to. He says, the most part of the people, that is, the most part seem to rest contented and to satisfy their consciences just with a dead formality in religion. If they performed duties pretty punctually, they were ready to conclude that they were truly and sincerely religious. A very lamentable ignorance of the main essentials of true practical religion prevailed. You notice he says true practical religion. Very important word. That is, as it comes to be worked out in practice. The nature and necessity of the new birth was but little known or thought of. The necessity of a conviction of sin and misery by the Holy Spirit uh, opening and applying the law to the conscience in order to a saving closure with Christ was hardly known at all to the most. But the common notion seemed to be that if people were aiming to be in a way of duty as well as they could, there was no reason to be much afraid. Well, this, this last sentence is exactly the, the posture of soul 
of pre-Reformation Europe. You, I, I hope you notice that. The common notion seemed to be that if people were aiming to be in a way of duty as well as they could, there was no reason to be much afraid. The only difference was they were in a Protestant way of duty, not in a Catholic way of duty. The Catholic way of duty was entirely different. Uh, penance and, and works of charity and so forth were prescribed. That was the way of duty. And, and if that was being done, then implicitly it was understood. Then, then, then I'm fine. I'm taking care of those things that God requires. The Catholic Church is telling me this. The Protestant world was different. But there's still a way of duty that seems right to a man who is ignorant of how he actually comes to have peace with God through Jesus Christ, as we heard in the sermon last week, uh, out of Romans 5.1. Having therefore been justified through faith, we have peace with God. Well, men in pre-Reformation days and men in pre-Great Awakening days were finding peace with God by the inventions of men uh, and of their own minds, rather than what the Gospel prescribes. It's, you could say it's the irresistible presupposition of the natural mind to think in these ways, uh, whether it's Catholic or whether it's Protestant, to justify itself by something within itself. That's just, it, it, is, it, it is how we're wired by nature until the spirit disabuses us of the notion to justify myself by something in myself. Uh, it is the carnal mind but at its best. It's not the carnal mind at its worst. Uh, we know something of the carnal mind at its worst. We can look about us and see it. But we're talking about the carnal mind at its best in the church, professing true religion. Well, this takes us back a little bit to the Reformation. If you remember the clash between Luther and Erasmus, we spent a week talking about this. And it was a great moment in the Reformation. This happened in the year 1525. Erasmus's maxim, which he had, which he had borrowed from the schoolmen, uh, the theologians in the schools and in the universities. This was Erasmus's maxim: "Do what in you lies, for God accepts the act of one who does what is in him." This was the method of justification: "Do what in you lies, and God won't turn you away." It sounds pretty, pretty common sense. Well, Luther had, had been strenuously raised on this very scheme. And for him, it had ended in massive failure. And that massive failure in Luther was an embodiment, you could say, of the end of the Dark Ages. I mean, it was it, writ large. You, you could, Luther was a microcosm, in a sense, of the conversion of Protestant Europe, uh, largely from Catholicism to Protestantism. This is what Luther said, you may remember. A man who does what is in him only piles one sin upon another. Now that's a radical statement. I mean, that's rejectable not only by people in the world, but by many people in the church. How can you say God, uh, how can you say that, that, that men, not only is it no good, but that they're piling one sin upon another when they're doing what in them lies in order to gain the favor of God? Why? Well, for this reason, and Luther made this very clear, which we'll, we'll quote from him in a minute, but the, re the reason to sum it up is as long as this man refuses to approve God's sentence on himself, that is, no one does good, no, not even one. Until a man accepts that of himself and says, God, I believe, I justify you in your condemnation of me, until a man reaches that point at which he's not arguing and contending with God anymore over the issue of his own righteousness, 
Until then, every single one of his acts is, is an act of unbelief. There's no way around it. Because he's walking and he's acting, he's trying to please God in unbelief. Because he hasn't believed what, what God's own testimony out of God's own mouth is about him. So this is what Luther says. God has promised his grace to the humbled, to those who mourn over and despair of themselves. But a man cannot be thoroughly humbled until he realizes that his salvation is utterly beyond his own power, will, and work. As long as he is persuaded that he can make even the smallest contribution to his salvation, he remains self-confident and so is not humbled before God. He dreams he is whole and sound, but Scripture describes him as corrupt and led captive and furthermore, as proudly disdaining to notice. Therefore, the law comes to rouse him that he may know by sure experience how unable he is. Just a marvelous, a marvelous statement. Well, right there, Luther is expressing what would come to be known in the next century as the Reformed Doctrine of Preparation. The Reformed Doctrine of Preparation. But it's, it's crucial to distinguish it between the Roman Catholic Doctrine of Preparation, which we've already seen. Do what in you lies. And so a whole litany of, of duties was prescribed uh, through the sacramental system. Acts of penance, works of charity, and so forth. But Luther's describing exactly the opposite. It's not man, according to Luther. It's not man, but it's God who's preparing the man. The Roman system is the man is preparing himself. The, the, the Reformed understanding of preparation is God himself is preparing the soul. And again, not by adding anything to it, but by removing something. That's, that's the Holy Spirit's preparation of a soul to, to ready it for Christ. You, you can think of the prophecy of John the Baptist. Make, make way in the wilderness. Prepare the way in the wilderness for the Lord. And John the Baptist came and he leveled mountains and he raised valleys. He's preparing the way for the Lord. Well, this is the work of preparation and it's a divine work. So God himself is doing the preparation by removing the delusion of righteousness, which renders every man unable, constitutionally unable to receive Christ, uh, to come to Christ for the righteousness of God. You can't, you can't, you can't uh, pine after the righteousness of God unless you're sensible of your own bankrupt condition with regards to the righteousness that God accepts. So how does God remove this delusion of righteousness, says Luther? Well, he does it by the law. We read the quote. When the law of God in the hands of God, as it were, which is to say, by the Spirit of God, when that law is brought home with spiritual power to a man, then the man begins with a certain horror to know himself. This was something that we saw in the text that we read from Job. Wherefore I abhor myself in dust and ashes. Before I heard you with the ears, now I see you with the eyes. There's a proximity. You've come near to me. It wasn't Job that came near to God. It was God that in his perfect timing came near to Job. And we see the effects on Job. Calvin Put it like this. Because men are too full of their own virtue, they are not fit to receive Christ's grace unless they first be emptied. Therefore, through the recognition of their own misery, the law brings them down to humility in order to prepare them to seek what they did not realize they lacked. So the law comes with spiritual power in the hands of the Spirit to a man, then... As I said, he begins to know himself. He's, he, he, there's some degree of horror. Uh, we don't try to measure it. 
uh, certainly there can be arguments about how much or how little, but that's, that's entirely beside the point and it's a distraction. The point is the fact of a sense of disillusionment with oneself and fear uh, arises in the man. Then his mouth is stopped. And as scripture says, then that man with all the world begins to see himself as guilty before the face of God. And this is the way that the spirit prepares a man for the reception of Christ. And until this happens, he'll go on week after week professing his Protestant creeds, even his Reformed creeds, while his heart is secretly alienated from the life of God. And he doesn't even know it. He's in the, to use a, a, a title of the most famous sermon of the Reformation, he's in the hands of an angry God and he doesn't even know it. He's just going on blithely in his way through the ignorance that is in his heart. And he'll stay this way until and unless the Holy Spirit descends by the word and with the word into the joints and the marrows and the, and the marrow of his heart to draw out the self-righteousness and then to do what, as the spirit of Christ, being sent by Christ, what he's supremely come to do, and that is to display Christ in all his mediatorial glory. That, that's really the point that we're coming to. It's not, it's not to, to, to ruin a man's sense of himself or his self-esteem. That's not the point at all. But until that happens, he'll never psychologically be prepared to receive Christ or to even want him or to desire him. And to the degree that he confesses him when he doesn't desire him, uh, he'll be struggling with assurance his whole life long because he's not even conscious of the fact that, that, that he had to abandon himself and lay hold of Christ who had made himself clear enough to him that he knows, he knows what he's believing. Like Paul said, I know whom I believed and am persuaded. Well, that, that's, you can argue whether or not that's the essence of faith or it follows from faith, but there's something implicit in that saving act of faith that, that, that lays hold upon the garment of Christ that is, is confident of what it's laying hold of. There's an assurance built in, as it were. I don't say fully developed, but in germ, incipiently, that assurance is there. And it's a matter of growth, not of, not of possessing what you have not already possessed. Anyhow, that, that's another subject altogether. I didn't mean to, to stray off into that. Anyhow, what we've gotten to, this is precisely the story of the Great Awakening. This is the work of the Spirit of God in the soul of man, to use another great book title. It can all be gathered up into this question and answer out of the Shorter Catechism. Question 31. Does anyone know question 31 without me even saying what it is? Right there. What is it? Oh, oh, yeah, it's in the handout, so everybody knows. <laughs> I forgot. I gave you a handout. Question 31. What is effectual calling? It is the work of God's Spirit whereby convincing us of our sin and misery, enlightening our mind in the knowledge of Christ and renewing our wills, he doth persuade and enable us to embrace Jesus Christ freely offered to us in the gospel. Marvelous summation. It's just, this, this, I can't say it's my favorite question in the Shorter Catechism, but it's tied for first with several others. It, it is so good. Well, the Shorter Catechism, if you know your history uh, at all, uh, was written in the 1640s. In England, in London, in fact. This was exactly halfway between the Reformation and the Great Awakening. Exactly halfway between the two great epochs. Uh, during the golden age of English Puritanism. Now, it would be lovely to, to just linger on 
that age of that, that, that age of English Puritanism. It was a tremendous age. Now we're not going to, but I do want to. I want to linger actually just for a few minutes on it because the Puritans of the 17th century and the Great Awakening of the 18th century have a vital connection, and it has to do with the nature of gospel preaching. We've been talking about the Spirit's work of preparing a soul to receive Christ, to lay hold of Christ. But there's something more than just the work of the Spirit. There is the preaching of the Word of God. And it is preached by human beings. Men preach the Word of God. So the nature of gospel preaching, uh, there's a vital link between the Puritan preaching of the 17th century and the preaching that, that began to be revived during the Great Awakening. Effectual calling is the exclusive work of God's Spirit. He alone gives the increase, but we, we know the text out of 1 Corinthians. Uh, God gives the increase, but it's emphatically upon the planting of Paul and the watering of Apollos. You see how he draws men in to be co-laborers in this work with him. Well, there's gospel preachers in every age. There's never been an age in which there has not been a gospel preacher endued to some degree with the Spirit of God in the preaching. But England in the 17th century was eminently endowed with men of this character. Uh, we, we can think of the men, Sibbs and Bunyan and Owen and Watson and Sharnock and Manton, uh, Flavel. There's so many of them. And we've read many of them. Well, these men pronounce the rigor, the perfection of the law. We've already been talking about that. That's what the Holy Spirit brings home to a man. Uh, they were preaching this out of the scriptures, expounding it. The fearful condition, the exposed condition of men before the judgment seat of Christ. But then they lay this foundation and not as if chronologically you only have the one and then you have the other, but all together. But there's, there's a logical order, but there's not, there's not a chronological order to this kind of preaching. But I say then, in a logical sense, then they presented with such sweetness and power the sufficiency, the all-sufficiency of Jesus Christ for the predicament, the fatal, eternal predicament in which men find themselves when the law comes home to the heart. It's, it's just, it's beautiful. It's utterly beautiful. Well, this was the work of the Puritan ministry in the 17th century. And they were not, in all of this, they were not accidentally, but they were very intentionally and deliberately conforming to the pattern and the method of the Holy Spirit in the work of the Holy Spirit, who comes, who's sent by Christ to convince the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. The Puritans were conforming to this pattern of the Holy Spirit's preaching. In their preaching, there was a beautiful harmony between the divine and the human in this work of bringing men into the kingdom of God. They were conforming in two ways in particular that I want to mention. In matter, that is, they were preaching what the Spirit himself preaches, which I already mentioned, sin, righteousness, judgment. But they were also conforming in manner. That is, they were preaching as the Spirit preaches. And this is a really crucial point. They, they weren't preaching generally, uh, kind of inspiring messages, just kind of beating the air, not really addressing anyone in particular, but like a laser, they were cutting into the consciences of men, particularly by addressing particular sins. In many cases, sins that they were aware of in their own congregations. They were addressing them and driving them home into the consciences of men. Exactly what the Holy Spirit does. Thomas Hooker, one of the great English Puritans who came to America in the 1630s and actually is the founder of the state of Connecticut. He's one of our men, Thomas Hooker. 
This is what he says. Many lie skulking under the covers of deceit. He's, he's talking about men that are being preached to in the church. Many lie skulking under the covers of deceit and are not discovered. Preachers should bring the light to their bedsides so that they cannot escape. Applying the word, hitting and pinching as the conditions and corruptions of men require. Well, this hitting and pinching, Richard Sibbs, one of the early Puritans uh, in England, called bruising. He's, he has a famous work called The Bruised Read, which if you haven't read it, buy it, get it, read it. It's fabulous. Richard Sibbs, The Bruised Read. This is what, this is what Sibbs says in agreement with Hooker. A marvelous hard thing it is to bring a dull and shifting heart to cry with feeling for mercy. Bruising is required so that the spirit may make way for itself into the heart by leveling all proud high thoughts and that we may understand ourselves to be what we are indeed by nature. This bruising maketh us set a high price on Christ. The gospel is the gospel indeed then. And he's only saying what we've already heard from Luther and Calvin. You see this, this, this uh, thread uh, running through all of this gospel preaching. John Flavel. John Flavel was a later English Puritan. This is what he says in agreement with these men that we've already quoted. This is a beautiful statement. To think of Christ, he says, is easy. But to come to Christ is to nature impossible. Nature hath neither ability nor will nor power nor desire to come to him. You cannot believe till God hath opened your eyes to see your sin, your misery by sin, and your remedy in Jesus Christ alone. Believe it, O man. You see this, this direct this direct address, which I just love. Believe it, O man, that breast of thine must be wounded. That vain and frothy heart of thine must be pierced and stung with conviction and sorrow for sin, if ever thou rightly close with Christ by faith. But if God once wounds the heart, then nothing in the world is so precious, so necessary, so vehemently desired and panted for as Jesus Christ. Well, this was Puritan preaching. I've just given you a very, 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 very small sample of it in this category in which we're speaking. This doesn't sum up all Puritan preaching, but in this particular uh, doctrine of preparation, if you will, or effectual calling. It was Puritan preaching, and, and we will see it was the preaching of the Great Awakening. Not in every case. There's excesses which we'll have to spend some time looking at. Uh, there was some wildness where human passions uh, got involved. And that's not a small chapter in the Great Awakening. But I, I want us to focus on the work of the Spirit in it. Uh, very crucial. Well, John Flavel died in the last decade of the 17th century, 1691. 1691, he died. And with him, more or less, that golden age of Puritanism was passing away. And declension began to set in. Where you don't have preaching like this, declension tends to, be, tends to set in over time. J.C. Ryle, a name we know, Bishop Ryle in the, in, in the Church of England, in England, speaking of the early decades of the 1700s then, after the Puritan age had passed away, uh, he describes England in, in these words, natural theology as opposed to supernatural, without a single distinctive doctrine of Christianity, cold morality, barren orthodoxy, formed the staple teaching, both in church and chapel. Sermons everywhere 
were little better than miserable moral essays, utterly devoid of anything likely to awaken, convert, or to save souls. What a, what a vast difference between what we were just reading and what Ryle is describing as the England of, of the early 1700s. Well, in America, it was the prevailing condition too. It's the same on both sides of the Atlantic. Which brings us back to complete the quote of Samuel Blair that we started with. We'll read just this last part of it. This is Samuel Blair in Pennsylvania in the 1640s is describing his own congregation and the parishes in the area, in the, in the vicinity in Pennsylvania, which he was familiar with. They were, he says, very generally through the land, careless at heart and stupidly indifferent about the great concerns of eternity. There was very little appearance of any hearty engagedness in religion. A vain and frothy lightness was apparent in the deportment of many professors, meaning professing Christians, not college teachers. We understand that. Uh, Thus, he says, religion lay, as it were, dying and ready to expire its last breath of life in this part of the visible church. Well, we'll end right there. We've set the problem forth, and next week um, we're going to see the beginning of gospel preaching being revived in America in the style of the Puritan era. So let's close in prayer and be dismissed. Father, we never tire of thanking you for the inconceivably great and sweet and rich things of Jesus Christ. Bless us in the next hour as we indeed hear preaching out of your word. May it come with power, and may we expect it to come with power, and pray for you yourself to meet with your people. As you promised, we we don't venture to ask something that you have not in fact commanded us to ask, which is the beauty of it. So strengthen our faith that, that we may feast at your word and at your table in the coming hour. In Jesus' great name, amen.